The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we are continuing our series in the book Pilgrim's Progress. And how many of you have noticed that we are not keeping to the schedule that we sent out? hoping no one had picked up on that yet. Uh, so at this point, we're only one week behind so far. Uh, so I will, uh, I'll try to send out a, a revised schedule, but as soon as we do that, guess what will happen? Yeah, we'll fall behind again. So I'll try to send that out. So uh, today, the hopes would be to look at rooms number four, five, and six in Interpreter's House and then Pastor Charlie will be looking at room seven, and then the cross and the sepulcher, Lord willing, next week. So we're not too far behind. Think of it this way, you're ahead. That's a more positive spin on things. It's not that we're behind, you guys are just ahead. So uh, thinking about, uh, kind of just review to get ourselves, uh, well, where Christian is. Uh, Christian had two friends that... Uh, followed him out of the city of destructions. Their names were obstinate and pliable. Which one turned back first? Obstinate and pliable. Uh, wanted to hear of the glories of heaven, which means uh, that he was more interested in the gifts of God than in, well, God himself. Yeah, absolutely. They fell into, what did they fall into, Johnny? The slough. You let me down, Jay. I lean heavy on you, and it's, now it would be slough if you were, but that's only if it's a verb. If it's a verb, it's slough when you slough something off, but it's slough every other time. So, <laughs> slew is the past tense of I killed somebody. I slew them. <laughs> also, it's one of the Scottish, uh, one of their favorite words, to kilt somebody. He got killed. Uh, so uh, Christian goes on. Who uh, assists him out of the slough? Yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say who helped him out, but that would just be too obvious. So help helps him out, directs him to uh, the wicked gate. Can he see the wicked gate from where he's at? No. What can he see? Yonder shining light. He's told to follow that light. He goes to uh, the narrow of the straight gate and uh, individual pulls him through the door. Who was that? Well, yeah, but he had a different name. Goodwill. Yeah, Goodwill. And then Goodwill immediately sends him to Interpreter's House. I read a quote last week from Alexander White. It bears repeating again this week. He says, of the Interpreter's House, every minister of the gospel is an interpreter and every evangelical church is an interpreter's house. There is no house in all the earth after the gate itself that is more dear to the true pilgrim heart than interpreter's house. So uh, the idea behind interpreter's house is that Christian along the way from, well, where he's at coming through the gate until he crosses the river to the celestial city, he will need, uh, will help along the way, but an understanding of spiritual things to guide him all of the way through. And so the, the seven lessons of Interpreter's House are meant to guide every Christian through this life. It is not an easy journey to the celestial city. It is a difficult one. It is a confusing one. And these are uh, lessons that each Christian needs. So the first room, uh, remember he's brought in and there's a picture hanging on the wall of of what? Of what? of a pastor, of a, of a very grave man, which means we know he was a Baptist pastor because he had that Baptist smile, which other people call a scowl. And uh, so the point there was that, well, isn't a good church extremely important on your way to the celestial city? Yeah, so uh, the point that Bunyan brought up at the end of that room was uh, that there are many, let's see if I can find it, um, <clears throat> man, his picture is, this is the only man that the Lord is, uh, of, that the Lord of the place, whither thou art going, has authorized to be the guide in all difficult places you may meet with in the way. 
This is uh, because there's lots of false ones. And that was written before uh, the internet existed. So imagine what Bunyan would think now as uh, the proliferation of false teachers and their false doctrine. Well, the need for a clear gospel preaching church, more important now than, well, I'd say ever, but maybe we're just prisoners of the moment. What was the second room that a Christian went into? What was that? Yeah, the one full of dust and someone came in and swept it and it went everywhere, but it didn't do anything. It just settled back down. And then some lady came in with water and sprinkled it. And what was the thing that stirred up the dust? The law. What was the water? Yeah, the grace of the gospel. So God uses the law in our, in our life to make us aware of our sin. The law doesn't then solve that. We actually need the grace of the gospel to come in and cleanse uh, each and every heart. And then the third room had two kids in it. They had a name each. What were the names of the two kids? Passion and? Yeah, which one lived uh, more like a little kid? Yeah, Passion. Yeah, yeah, Passion did. And uh, Passion, that kid, symbolized folks of the world who want what now? They want their reward now. They want satisfaction now. They want, they want, in the words of a false prophet that we should be warned about from the first one, they want to have their best life now, right? And so the second kid, Patience, was willing to wait for the reward. That kind of symbolizes Christians that are willing to forego things in this life because, well, our eye is set on the world that is to come. So that leads us right to, if you use the green copy, uh, page 30. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't write down the, all the pages for all the various and sundry copies, but uh, we'd spend half of our time. Uh, if you look at page uh, 30 in, well, in my copy, in a various different page for your copy, I'm actually just going to read uh, this section. There's be more reading today than is usual because of their shorter sections and they're so densely packed with goodness. Uh, room number four that I saw in my dream, recalling that this is actually uh, the way that Bunyan pitches the whole narrative is that he sees these things in his dreams. He's actually reminding you of that in this paragraph. I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him to a place where there was a fire burning against a wall and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it in order to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. And Christian says, what means this? And the interpreter answered, the fire is a work of grace, worked in the heart. And he that cast water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. So he's brought into a room and there's not like a fire, like the house is on fire. But it's, it's like there is a fireplace that's recessed into the wall Christian goes in, he sees it, and he asks, well, what, what is this fire? And the fire is, as the interpreter says, it's actually the work of grace that God has done in the heart. What an interesting picture for grace in the heart. Uh, a burning, well, what would the burning be towards? I get we're kind of picking our way through different metaphor, but what would the burning be? I get it's grace in the heart, but there's more involved to it. Desire for what or whom? For God. Yeah, love for God born in the heart. Now, uh, who is the one who starts that fire in the life or the heart of a person? Yeah, God does. It's not like one day in our great moment of intellectual brilliance, we say, you know what? Man, I've hated God this whole time, but I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to love God. Like, well, that may be the way you sort of experienced it. But there was actually nothing in us that led us towards God. Isn't there something in the book of Romans about seekers? How many are there? Yeah, there's no one that seeks God in the case we misread it, Paul says. Not even one. Yeah. So the work of grace that's begun in the heart is a work that's begun by God himself. He's the one, and, and for some of you, that, that shift was so subtle, it was hard to, to detect. For others of you, 
it, it may have been far more dramatic. I remember one of my friends said he went to bed one night not believing the gospel. He woke up the next day and he believed it and he didn't know why he did. That, that's an I mean that that's quite dramatic, right? To just one day be like, "This is a fairy tale." The next one be like, "It's true, and I don't know why, but it is." That's kind of a scary endeavor. So uh, there's another individual comes into this room and he's pouring water on to the fire, and uh, interpreter identifies this person as who, as the devil. What do you think is meant by the casting of water on the fire? That woe is grace. What? Let's bring, let's flesh that out in a few uh, more full terms. What, what is that? Doubt. Doubt could be one of them. It's another one. Yeah, suffering could be a form of uh, trying to quench that fire. What's another one? Temptation. Now, are there uh, a, a whole buffet of temptations? They're not always the same in, in different seasons, right? You could, on one season, uh, even let's just take finances because that seems, uh, well, just easy. So uh, when you're poor, isn't there one set of temptations? And then when you, well, are not poor, a whole different set. On the one, Doubting whether God will take care of you. Doubting if God will come through. On the other, the temptation to then trust those riches. So, I mean, even in the same span, different seasons, the temptations can be different. I'd say doubt or a temptation to doubt God's word and God's promises uh, is is a huge one that comes in all shapes and sizes. So here's the devil, he's pouring water onto the heart, and, and he has all these tools at his disposal, whether they're um, temptation towards gain, or he can use fear, or he can use pleasure, or he can use whatever it is. Sometimes they're, they're sharp, swift temptations. Other times they're long, slow temptations. He uses all of them. And what would we expect would be the effect that water uh, tends to have on fire? Yeah, puts, yeah. in, in general, <laughs> as a rule of thumb, uh, fire and water have a tenuous relationship. And often water, well, it wins. So as Christians watching this water get poured on the fire, what happens to the fire? It not just endures, it gets bigger. Now, Christian can only see half of what's going on. And so interpreter leads him around behind the wall. And um, let me see where it is. Notwithstanding the fire grows hotter and hotter, you shall see the reason of it. So he had him come around to the backside of the wall. And there he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of which he did also continually but secretly pour into the fire. And Christian says, what means this? And interpreter says, now I love that he just, he dispels with all the the veil. This is Christ who's doing this. He'll continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. This is one of the most brilliant bits of the book that we're studying. There is a secret nature to the way grace is maintained in the heart. Now you could, it's one thing to read it, But I want you to think of your own life, and I want you to think of moments or seasons where the devil has poured water, whether it's through trial or temptation or however it was, and you'd think back on that season now in the rearview mirror, and not only was faith maintained, but what happened is the result coming out of the trial. Faith somehow emerged stronger, burning somehow miraculously hotter. In the moment, did you see 
Christ pouring the oil upon the flame of your, didn't see it at all. It was, it was veiled. It was a mystery. And there might be even times where you wondered in the midst of it, I don't know how I'm continuing. I don't know how I'm still, I don't know how this is still happening, but it does. Now, it's far easier to see in other people's lives, right? So you, you can watch other people suffer and you can see how God, through, through all of these various means, brings encouraging and supporting grace into their life. But aren't we really blind to it when it's us? It's one thing to uh, watch suffering in the life of someone else. It's a, it's a different thing to endure it yourself. But knowing this, shouldn't we then engage in suffering and trial and temptation differently knowing it? Can't you go into a a trial or temptation or difficult season and know as hard as it is that the mediatorial and interceding work of Christ continues whether I see it or not? Continues whether I, for lack of a better term, whether I feel it or not, I can know that the one who kindled the flame is not willing for that flame to be extinguished. Isn't that really similar to what Paul says in uh, Philippians 1 verse 6? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. So the the one who kindled the flame is not willing that that the water of temptation or trials would extinguish it. So he pours the oil. Now whether Bunyan meant this or not, what happens when you pour water on an oil based fire? You might be like, you know an awful lot about fire. I was homeschooled. What do you think we played with? <laughs> fire. So uh, actually you throw water on an oil fire. It actually gets really big really quickly. And you try to put it out before mom finds out. So <clears throat> similarly, <laughs> forgot there were young kids in here. Ignore most of what you just heard. <laughs> I'm talking about faith. Not <laughs> um. You can trust that Christ will bring to completion what he's begun. You might say, I don't see how I can make it through. I understand. He is hidden behind the wall on this side of glory, right? But he's not willing that it would extinguish the flame. Now, we have to move on because otherwise we're going to be two weeks uh, behind and... Well, that'll probably happen anyway. So uh, the fifth room is uh, what's possibly my favorite of the rooms. It is the man who storms uh, the castle. You should see this if you have the green copy around about page 31. So uh, the interpreter takes uh, Christian to a, a place. It's a, he calls it a pleasant place. He sees a palace or a castle, describes it as beautiful, and, and who, or, well, there's folks walking on the top of the castle, and what are they clothed in? Robes of, of gold. And he desires to go and join them, um, and he a- actually asks the interpreter, like, hey, can I go hang out here with everyone else? And the interpreter says, well, actually, let me, there's more to the castle. He sees a door, and there stood a great company of men uh, desirous to go in, but they, they durst not. What is durst not? They dared not. Yeah, that, that's more helpful than durst. They dared not. Why did they dare not go? So there's a whole group, like Christian, wanting to go in. Why did they not go in? What was that? There were armed men guarding the gates. And those men, uh, their, their weapons were not, well, decorative. Uh, they were intent on doing ill to anyone who tried. And as Christian sees both this crowd willing to, or wanting to go in, he sees a group of armed men guarding the door and this group that durst not go. Uh, there's actually one more element to the scene before it unfolds. There's a guy sitting at a little desk, and he's got an 
an inkhorn, or he's got a pen or something that he can write stuff down with. And he's there to take the name of those who would seek to enter. But how many are giving their names? Well, at this point, zero. No, no one's daring to go. And then, uh, in somewhat of amazement, at last, a man started um, back for fear of the men, and I saw a man of stout countenance. I think that means something differently than it does now. I don't think he's saying, there was a guy who had, well, extra weight. I don't think that's what he's saying. (laughs) It may have been, I don't know. I I mean, I'll ask him in heaven, were you talking about someone who looked like me? Or he might say, well, if the shoe fits or if the, I don't know. So uh, this stout man of countenance, I would think it'd actually be stout-hearted. There's a brave man who comes up, and what does he tell, this is this, this part just gets me each time. What does he tell the guy at the desk? Write down my name, sir. Oof. There's boldness and there's brazenness and there's determination in wanting to be counted among those who would make it well into the castle, which we'll get to the imagery there in a minute. He uh, has his name written down, he draws his sword, he puts on the, his helmet on his head, and he bull rushes the door and the armed men. And it's not like they're like, okay, man, we were just here for decoration, we'll let you go. What did the, what did the guys guarding the gate actually do? They fought him. They, 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 they tried to whoop him in the uh, Hick version of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And they applied deadly force. They're trying to kill him. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cut. It means that he, he like gave himself to cutting and hacking fiercely. This dude is not playing at all. It's not a game. Now, this is going to be quite important here in just a moment. This is not fake swordplay. This is life and death. That's the struggle that's right here on the page. He matches deadly force with deadly force, and he goes in hacking and whacking his way through so that after he had both received and given many wounds. So does he emerge unscathed? No. I I love that. He, both, he dished out and received uh, a whooping, but he emerges victorious. He cuts his way through all of them and presses forward into the palace. And then as he like goes through the gate, there's, Bunyan says, a pleasant voice was heard from those who were within, even those that walked upon the wall saying, come in, come in, eternal glory, thou shalt win. When he went in, he was clothed with such garments as they. Now, I, I love, there's so many times where Christians are like, what's that mean? What's that mean? He's like a three-year-old. Why? What's this? At this point, he doesn't say that. He smiles and said, I think I know the meaning of this. Which sometimes when he's, he does that, you're like, okay, but I don't. <laughs> in this case, I also would understand. What, what do you think? He is portraying here in this room of Interpreter's House. He's showing you something. What is he showing you? Christian life takes determination. That's one piece. What's another piece? Yeah. If you, if, if you take up weapons, uh, those against you tend to take them up too. I think if we applied uh, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, you would be correct. What else? The world's going to oppose you. What's the castle that he's fighting to enter? What's that? Yeah, heaven or the kingdom of heaven or salvation. Is there a holy violence that's required in the Christian life? 
You're like, well, given the way you asked that, I would think the answer would be, well, yes. So one of my most favoritest of all verses, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, because some would even hear that and be like, well, I don't know. Like, are Christians to be a violent people? Yes. Yes, we are. They're like, no, we're supposed to be really, Christians are above everything else supposed to be nice. Isn't that what the Bible says? No, that's no, that's not what the Bible says. So Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until even now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent men take it by force. Now, if you don't read it carefully, you might think like, oh no, violent men. They're doing bad things. Like, no, no, actually the violent men are those who would then receive the kingdom. So the kingdom suffers violence and violent men take it. Is your hand up? I forgot it when I saw your hand up. Keep, go for it. No, don't worry about it. That's more my brain than anything else. Yeah. Absolutely. Let us cast off a very violent word. Yeah. So I think that's exactly what Bunyan's pointing to, that there are those who did the same fight, entered, and are now in heaven, and they should, uh, in, for lack of a better term, inspire us for the same fight. How, how encouraged have you been by reading a good Christian biography? You read of, uh, you know, um, as soon as I say that, I'm like, I can't think of anybody. Adoniram Judson or... Um, Oh, uh, William Carey, or, I mean, and, I mean, you, the, the list is seemingly endless. And you read it, and what does it encourage you to do? To take the foot off the gas? Or to press harder for the kingdom? Yeah. There's one of my favorite books by um, Thomas Watson. It's called uh, Heaven Taken by Storm. And the, the whole book is written on Matthew 11, verse 12. It's a very easy read. It'd be, it would even be uh, accessible for some younger readers. And his whole point is that the, the Christian life is a life of violence. He says, well, let's talk about the areas that we offer violence to. We have to offer violence in our praying and violence in our hearing of the word and violence in our fight against sin. I mean, so he talks about all the ways in which you would storm the gates now, that is not the version of Christianity that is being propounded in America right now. If the modern American church were to write this room, it would be like, there's this carriage that people carry and they're silk pillows. And you ease into the celestial, no. Now, that's more of a health and wealth and prosperity false gospel than anything else. And what happens to the, to the confessing Christian who believes that heaven will be had easily? What happens when they encounter difficulty? Well, they think one of a couple different things. Either I'm doing it wrong, right? Like if it's supposed to be easy and it's not easy, then I, the, the problem must be me. So we heap on people's consciences all this guilt for, well, if it's hard, you must be broken, or maybe you're not saved, or maybe you don't have enough faith, because if you had enough faith, it'd be easy. What a despicable thing to do to someone, to heap that on their conscience and, and ill-inform it so that it accuses them that if they are ill, if they have a disease or someone that they love as a disease, that something must be wrong with them. Rather than that, we would see from the scripture that it's a hard road to heaven. So that when you encounter those difficulties, rather than being like surprised by them, what should our response be? This is what I expected. I mean, imagine this, the, just the foolishness if this stout man uh, goes and, and storms the gate and the first guy that hits him is like, what are you doing? Come on, man. I was told there was free candy up in here, or whatever it was. I thought this was a vacation where, like, the waves would lap at my legs, and I would sip and drink, and I thought maybe some sword play, 
so that people thought it was hard, but it's not really hard. No, it is gut-wrenchingly hard. It is a receiving and the giving of wounds to get to heaven. Now, he's not teaching, and we, some would look at it and say, like, well, that's teaching, you know, works righteousness or something. Oh, stop that. It isn't. Those who are on their way to heaven, in whom the fire of grace has been kindled by the Lord Jesus Christ, those in whose heart he is pouring the oil that fuels that fire within them, they live a certain kind of way. And there's a reason why, this is like a side tangent, but I like it, so we'll just take it anyway. There's a reason why the church is called here the church militant. That's the name of the church on earth. The church victorious is the one, or the church triumphant is the one in heaven. That's not you yet. The church militant, there was actually something hardwired, for lack of a better term, in the church where she was made to fight. And I, I think I've used this analogy before, but I think one of the greatest uh, fighting forces in the history of the world were the Allied forces in World War II. And when they stopped fighting the enemy and there was peace, guess who they started fighting? Each other. Yeah, there was whole, whole, terrible violence that happened at the end when they got bored because there was no real fight, and they turned on one another. Well, that's what the church is doing now to one another in America. We're not fighting the good fight. We're just turning on each other on forums and online and even in person. The church was made to fight, but we're fighting the wrong thing. The church was made to go forth and wage war that Christ would have all for whom he's died. And we need to stop wasting all of our energy on, on some really dumb stuff. That's the theological term, dumb stuff. And aim it in the right direction. And be willing to say to the, the man at the desk, put my name down. I'm going and no one will get in my way. That needs to be the resolve of each and every Christian. So that... When uh, opposition is encountered, they don't think, I'm doing it wrong, or something's broken, or that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, no, he actually told you, in this life, you will have trials and tribulations. Yeah. And so when we encounter those things, as hard as they are, we ought to know a few different things. One of them being this, this is what my Lord promised would happen. Secondly, we should realize he himself was a man who received much opposition. They hated him and killed him. Guess what they'll do to you? You're not greater than your master, are you? No. Well, if they hated and killed him, it ain't looking too good for you. That's quite an honor, actually, in the Christian life. The third thing is if you go back to room number four, What's he going to do to your faith or the, the fire of grace begun in the heart in the midst of those battles? Well, he won't let off the watch of pouring the oil on it. He'll actually, behind the wall in ways you don't even see, he'll continue to feed and fuel your faith in the middle of the battle. You might say going into a battle, it's not looking really strong. He pours it in the middle of the battle when it's needed. And so you might look at and take um, inventory, well, I won't use illustrations, there's times where you might think like, well, if this happened, there's no way I could endure that. And you look at yourself right now. Well, if that happened, the man behind the wall would pour oil on the fire of your faith and you'd endure. You might say, I don't see how I could. Well, that's the reason that he's behind the wall. Of course you don't see it. And he pours oil when it's needed, uh, not just all the time. Sixth one, and we'll, the sixth room. This is my least favorite room, as it will be yours. I'm just going to read through it. We'll make comments along the way. Uh, this is probably the most uh, memorable of uh, the rooms. Now, Christian uh, said, let me go then. So he sees this. And I like Christian. Christian's got fight in him. He sees this dude hack his way through. He's like, I want to go do that too. I like that. Interpreter says, nay, stay. 
which I think means not now. Uh, I have to show you a little bit more, and then after that, you may go on your way. So the rest of the book is actually Christian's own journey towards that castle and the things along the way are those persons. Actually, the rest of the book plays out the, the, uh, the fifth room, uh, which is just really an interesting way, I think, of looking at the rest of the book. So he shows him, took him by the hand again, and he led him uh, into a very dark room. I think it's interesting, again, things must have been different back then. Uh, interpreters always grabbing Christian by the hand. Nah, dog, just walk and I'll follow you. But I remember once uh, we used to rent our church. This is neither here nor there, probably nor edifying, but interesting, maybe. Uh, we used to rent our church to a uh, Korean-speaking church when we were in Seattle. And the pastor there did not speak English. And he came up to me one Sunday and I knew something bad had happened because he came and he held my hand. And if you know me, don't hold my hand. And he starts walking. I was like, bro, what's going on? Like, I know you don't want to speak English, but you should understand this ain't cool. And he stopped. I tried to get out and he laced them up. And I was like, bro, whatever happened can't be worse than this. One of their kids had thrown a rock through a window. I'm like, oh, that's it. Oh, man, windows can be, windows can be fixed. What you just did can't. So <clears throat> I think of that when I read of interpreter. It's how my mind works or doesn't work, however way you want to view it. Leads him by the hand into the room, a very dark room, and where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man looked on, seemed very sad, and he sat with his eyes looking down to the ground and his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. And Christian said, what means this? At which point, interpreter bid him talk to the man. This is just a, a vivid scene, right? They go in, there's a man in a cage, it's dark, he's absolutely crushed in soul. Christian wants to talk to interpreter, interpreter says, you, you, you got to actually interview him yourself. Here he's interacting with the man in the cage. Christian says, what art thou? What a question. What are you? Not who are you or he, he understands he's looking at pictures needed for the journey. The man answered, I am what I was not once. Oof. Christian says, what, what were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing, notice the word, Professor. Didn't mean he taught at college. He professed to be a Christian. Didn't say I was a Christian once. I think that's, I think that's an interesting distinction. Both in my eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city or headed there. And had then even joyed the thoughts that I should get thither. So he's saying, I was once professing a Christian. I was once... I believed I was, and other people believed I was, and I actually had some sense of joy towards the celestial city. And Christian says, okay, well, that's what you were at one point. What are you now? The man uh, says, I'm now a man of despair. I'm shut up, as it were, in an iron cage, and I can't get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian, but how camest thou to this condition? The man, this is just sobering to even read. I left off to watch, or I left off watching and to be sober. And I laid the reins on the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I've provoked God to anger and he has left me. I've so hardened my heart that I can't repent. Christian says, how did you get here? The man says, at, at, at some point, this is my translation, I took my foot off the gas. I stopped pursuing the Lord. And I spent my energies pursuing, well, something else entirely. So I spurned the grace of God. I stopped chasing him down. And the idea of Laying the reins on the neck of your lust. That's, that's like a, I think it's a riding of horses. 
I'm looking at people who know something about horses. Yeah, you're not reining it back in. You're giving him the slack to go forward. You can tell I'm not a huge horse guy, but others of you are. Don't talk to my daughter. She thinks a horse is a key to happiness. Don't do that to me. So, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he lets, he does, instead of reining it in and fighting, he lets it go. Now, notice, he doesn't say, and temptation came, and to be tempted is to be not a Christian. No, that's not what he says. I stopped fighting it and let it go. Some would say, well, I'm tempted, and so maybe I'm the man in the iron cage. No, the man in the iron cage isn't someone who's tempted. The man in the iron cage who stops fighting, actually laid and gave free reign, which would be the other more modern way of saying he gave free reign to his lust to run. He tempted the devil, and guess who showed up? He made God angry, and guess who left? And now he says, my heart is hardened, and I can't repent. Christian says the interpreter, but is there no hope for such a man and interpreter says, ask him. Powerful again. And Christian says, is, there's no, is there no hope? But you must be kept in the iron cage of despair. And the man says, not at all. Christian says, why? Listen to the hope that Christian is trying to share with this person. The son of the blessed is very pitiful. That obviously has changed in modern. He means full of pity. The man of the blessed is full of compassion towards repentant sinners. Certainly he'd take you. Now, I actually think that the answers of the man in the cage are from his perspective of total and utter despair. So I don't think he's discouraging repentance. I think he's saying from his own perspective that those doors are all shut. And Christian, or the man says, I've crucified again him afresh. Again, quoting from uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I've despised his person. I've despised his righteousness. I've counted the blood or his blood an unholy thing. And I've done despite, I've done despite to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I've shut myself out of his promises and now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Yes, how did you get here? What brought you here into this cage? The man says, for lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. Now notice, what are the things that turn on him? This is, this is really interesting. Those very same things that lured him away in the first place. He says, they promised delight, but now every one of those things will also bite me, gnaw me, and burn or, and like a burning worm. So the lusts and the passions and the desires and the pursuits not only didn't carry through with the things they promised, they're now the very things that gnaw and bite and bruise them. Powerful image on how the deceitfulness of sin that promises life is the very thing that brings death. Promises pleasure brings pain. Something to keep in mind for all of us when the lies of sin and pleasure come promising great things to realize, I know they promise this, but all they'll actually deliver is to bite and to gnaw like a burning worm, right? And we've all... Uh, experience that. We've all said the thing that in that moment, you're like, man, this will be great. As soon as it left, or maybe later on, <laughs> it haunts you, all right? And you realize uh, that not only did it not bring pleasure, it actually uh, burned in the conscience terribly. He says, can't you repent? He said, no, repentance is denied. The man uh, speaks of eternity, how he'll grapple with his misery for eternity, and he's lost. Um, Christian says, we have to wrap this up. That's not what he says, but that's what I'm saying. Christian says, uh, well, this is indeed fearful. So this is him reflecting on 
um, what is the image? Actually, let me back up and read interpreter. Interpreter said to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by you and be an everlasting caution to you. And Christian said, this is indeed fearful. God, help me to watch and be sober, to pray that I might shun the cause of this man's misery. And then he says, is it time for me to leave? Which I would get, uh, that's a fair question if you're in the, the room with the iron cage. Like, can I leave now? Like, yeah, <laughs> let's move on. What a warning. What a warning. To be watchful against the sin in our own lives. And to not think, well, I, I have it contained. I've got it kept up. I've got it walled off so that it, it, yeah, it's not good. It'll stay here. Do not lay the reins on the neck of your sin. It'll devour you. Now, if someone is in this position, and there, there was a bit of a, a, a difference or disagreement when it comes to uh, the Puritans on the sin of apostasy or someone who's left the faith as to whether they could be restored again. A bit of that aside, or I guess maybe I'm just picking aside, I will always, always, always encourage someone to repent. Would never look at someone and say, like, oh, yeah, I think you're, I think you're boofed. Like, I, I, now, this is a warning and so here's the, the, the comforting thing that you shouldn't embrace. Don't think, well, it's okay, I'll repent later. That's, that's the thing being guarded against. But if you have someone in your life who, and you might say, well, I don't think if, if someone's in this position, they don't tend to show up for Sunday school. So I don't think that we're talking to folks in that category. But if there's someone in your life who uh, has walked away from the faith, I would continue to share the gospel with them. I'd continue to pray for them. I would continue to plead with them to repent. But I would also understand that the person that, I've, that I'm dealing with is hardened as a result of their experience. There is a hardening that goes on with the more light shown and rejected there is an added hardness. Now, can God bring someone back from that? He can. Does he do it often? Not in my experience. But that, would, that, that, that to me would not be any reason to stop praying, to stop pleading with God, to turn them. Right? Um, I've had several, several folks in my life who would actually fit the man in the iron cage description. Lots of folks that I grew up with, lots of some folks who are actually very influential for me, are in some various forms in the iron cage. However, uh, they can still be led out of it. So I don't want anyone to hear this piece of it, who maybe they are if they're listening, uh, thinking like, well, I'm that person in the iron cage. I don't want anyone to think like, well, I can't repent. There's nothing. No, if you have blood in your veins and breath in your lungs, today is the day to repent. And if you have a loved one who's still alive, God is showing, at least in in this season, he's showing patience. So I would pray for them. The warning comes for ourselves to not satisfy an afflicted conscience with the promise, well, I'll just repent and that'll be that. Like, I'll do this sin Knowing like, okay, I'll say I'm sorry. That is a dangerous, damning road because it leads towards hell. And so this is one of the reasons why Lone Ranger Christianity is just foolish and a non-category and all that. That's one of the reasons why we need one another in the church. I need brothers and sisters to watch my life. And who need me to watch theirs? It's one of the reasons why we as a church uh, carry out discipline. It's not because we like doing it. No one, no one here likes doing that. What are we trying to do when we discipline someone? We are pleading with them. Do not continue down this road. 
And isn't it marvelous when God uses that like desperate action to turn someone? And we've actually had several uh, iterations in this church where God has used that to bring someone back. We've seen it. He can do it. He delights to do it. But we should be in each other's lives, encouraging one another. And here, here's, and with this we'll, we'll end. When that happens to someone in my, in my life, right? They, they, they go astray. Guess what? The first thing that like pinches my conscience first. I didn't pray for them as I should have. I didn't. So let that be a lesson like on this side of things that we should be praying for one another, that faith would endure. We should be praying for one another that sin would be mortified. We should be praying for one another that we'd pursue Christ with all that we are. That is, that is a very uh, sober room to end today on. It's one that should make us uh, aware of our sin and not just suspicious, but like on guard against our sin, but also very thankful that room four, I think it's four, room five, four, it's four, is at play even today. That the man behind the wall, the Lord Jesus Christ, is pour oil on the fire of our faith. Guess some of the ways that, or some of the ways that he does that. So you can right here, this. The preaching of the word, the fellowship of the saints, the prayers of the saints. He's actually, the Lord's day is a, a, a day full of the oil that's poured on the fire. So give yourself to it. Give yourself wholeheartedly to it, knowing my faith is weak. I need the strengthening grace of Christ at work in my life. That's why when people are struggling and they're tempted to avoid church, that's like a starving person avoiding a table full of food. Don't do that. If you're weak and struggling, guess what? You need church more than anyone. And I'll, I'll add one thing because we do have the supper today. If you're uh, here for the afternoon service and you're a Christian and you're going, man, I've just had a terror. I'm in a tough season. I've, I'm weak. You need the supper more than anyone else. It's not a thing that would keep you away from it. The supper, I've said many times, the supper is not a reward for the strong. It's help for the weak. So the supper isn't a great job, like you're doing better than most. That's not what the supper is. Supper is I'm a weak sinner and I need a strong savior. And he offers strength to all who would ask and seek him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us much grace. We pray that the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ would be powerfully at work in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would pour the oil of your grace into our hearts today and that our hearts would be inflamed for you. We pray for those who are weak and wandering that today would be a day of strengthening and correction. We pray that you would set all of our eyes on you, that you would lift our eyes off of ourselves and fix them firmly on the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.